good morning, everyone. Uh, as Mitch mentioned, um, I uh, well, he's already kind of giving you the backstory as to how we know each other. But um, uh, just actually last year, uh, we were uh, had been church planting in Lake Zurich. Uh, actually, we came and visited with you uh, all. It's been a couple of years. Um, I don't know if some of you might have been here during that time, and we brought some of our members over, and I filled in for you at that time too, a few years ago. Last year, we actually ended up closing down our church plant, and uh, our people have moved on, and uh, my wife and I have also moving on to other things that the Lord has been, we feel like, has been calling us into. Um, we are actually, uh, I work now f- uh, with uh, Knox Theological Seminary. Uh, it's a place where I have got my uh, seminary degree from, and uh, have the privilege of being able to work with them, not in a teaching capacity, but actually kind of more in their uh, communications capacity. And... Um, uh, and so it's just been a joy to be able to work for an organization um, that is training up the next generation of, of leaders uh, across the world, really, um, who are taking the gospel uh, to another generation and to other people as well, both anywhere from here. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a couple of our, one of our alum actually is right here in Woodstock, and it's not Mitch, it's actually somebody else uh, that we both happen to know. And, um, but also down from here to Woodstock, but all the way down and just got the phone with somebody from Central America who's doing incredible work in Guatemala. And it's just a joy to be able to be kind of in that capacity and um, really believe in the future of seminary education. Um, and what we'll find today is that uh, theology uh, is so crucial, so important for us. It's one thing for us to be able to discern the culture. It's another thing for us to be able to read the word and then to be able to understand the words that are being spoken to us and that we're reading. So, well, I'm just excited to be here this morning and to give uh, Mitch a week off. Uh, I know how important it is as a pastor to kind of get that, that weekend relief a little bit. Uh, you're here, you're present, you love your people, he loves you, he loves your church, he loves Woodstock, and, um, but it's also my just privilege to be able to fill in for you this week. Um, as Mitch mentioned, we're going to be back into Luke um, and... Uh, uh, Luke is, a, uh, I think, a great gospel for our time right now. I've actually been spending a lot of time in my personal devotion in it lately. So I just think it's interesting that we've been kind of tracking along with you. didn't even know it. Um, and uh, the Lord has really impressed Luke 4 into my heart lately. And uh, been trying to discover this sense of what hope looked like. If uh, 2020 has taught us anything, it is that we are living in new, a new world. The world is not what it used to be. It is not the same any longer. The world has fundamentally changed. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, it has changed. And the reality is, it's been changing. 2020 exposed it all for us. From the pandemic to deep divisions politically, the world is fundamentally different. And what is hard, it's interesting to see, is that it's, it's so prevalent everywhere now. And there is a sense within the culture and with those which you know, in your homes, in your families, amongst your friends, your co-workers, even in the church, there's a sense of this fog that just sits over us. And a sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair, a sense of worry, a sense of anxiety, frustration, flat-out anger. My goodness, my first day's out on the road when all of a sudden we've been going on summer vacation and everyone's out on vacation and everyone's been cooped up. 
for a year, and my goodness, the road rage out there is insane. Have you experienced it? It's insane. It's crazy. And everyone's patience is, like, non-existent. Your favorite restaurants are understaffed. There's food that's not available that used to be on the menu. They're just saying, I'm sorry I brought it. The grocery store, the different places that you would go, the products that you would normally buy. I drove by a car lot the other day. You know, I'm looking at a car lot, and it's empty. I'm like, when is a car lot ever empty? Everything's different. Everything's changed. Been watching the, everyone watching the Olympics at all? Yeah, very few of you. That's exactly matches the, uh, the, the amount of people that are watching it this year. Is very few people are watching the Olympics. Um, I've been catching a little bit of it. Our family's been enjoying a little bit. But there's, the, the ratings are just, they're, they're tanked. They're terrible this year. And, uh, you know, of course, everyone's got their theories as to why that is. But I'll tell you, just as a, as a participant, as somebody who's watching, it's very strange to watch a sporting event with no spectators. There's nobody there. We've been doing this for now over a year. If you've ever watched like football, or if, you, if you're big football fans, you've been watching the football games, and then they slowly started allowing some people into the stands, or they pipe in the, the cheers, right? They like fake it all, you know. And it's like, yeah, there's just something off about this. There's this casual reminder that things are not normal. The world is different. The world has changed. And part of this change, this experience that we're going through is this sense of understanding the stories that we have told ourselves as to who we are as a people, who we are as a society, who we are as a culture, who the, what the world is meant to be, the vision, the aspiration for the future, is all of a sudden breaking down before our eyes. We had these visions of what the future, the good life would look like for ourselves, for others, and all those things are breaking down. And because you're in a state of despair, there is no unifying story that we can all grab hold of. There used to be this thing called the American dream, okay? And whatever you thought that American dream was, it is now fractured into about 20 different versions of that dream, okay? Which should tell you something. That it wasn't the same dream for everybody, and it isn't the same dream for everybody. And so that vision, there used to be the shared vision, right, of us as Western Americans. Like, there was the shared ideal that we could all rally around. And it would be a unifying force that didn't matter where you came from, the color of your skin, whether you're a male or female, whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, it didn't matter. We could find a commonality together to work together. And even those, that same story is just broken down. It's shattered. It doesn't, it's like it's, it won't even hold us together. And so now because we are lacking the shared story of a, of a shared identity, people are left in a very discomforting place. People are left feeling anxious. People are left feeling worried. People are left feeling, where do I belong? Where is home? What do I believe in any longer? It's a place of despair. It's a place of hopelessness. It's a place of, really, it's a frightening place. And it's a place in which everyone is looking for the next thing to tell them, what can I hope on? What can I lean on? Where is my hope at? Where is my faith located? 
what can I trust in that I believe that will bring about this future reality that I once thought would be, or does that have to change? And so that's the vision that I see is being played out in this passage in Scripture, this passage in Luke 4 that Jesus kind of walks into this season of a, actually isn't really too different than the one we're experiencing today, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit more. Sounds like you've already heard some great teaching on this passage already, so some of this might be review. But I want us to be able to look at this from the sense of this idea of feeling this disconnection from hope and feeling this polarization of different visions and competing ideologies of hope, okay? And let's look to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? The embodiment of hope, the embodiment of faith, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit, of God's um, presence and his wonder and his vision for us, for his people. What does he have to say about what hope looks like? Well, let's go ahead and just look there in, um, in, in Luke chapter 4 and uh, again at the passages and starting in verse 14. Uh, just so you know, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. Uh, I know that you are an ESV church, but that you'll, you'll find that you, we'll, we'll be tracking right along with each other um, all the way through. Let me just read this first part again. Luke 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit, his power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Now, if we recall, this part of the story where we're picking it up here is after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's 40 days of temptation. So uh, he is now uh, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. He uh, defeated, you know, basically had this temptation with him and Satan, and he is now uh, prepared and ready for his first ministry, really. And he begins to go throughout all these different towns, and he's teaching the synagogues, and he's gaining quite a bit of a following. Because, of course, he is this anointed teacher, and everyone is listening in on what he has to say. And they're noticing that something is unique about him. But then it's like, well, okay, now he comes to Nazareth. Nazareth happens to be his hometown, and something of great interest happens here. So verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read the scriptures. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written in uh, and so we've already heard, uh, you know, Mitch read Isaiah 61 already to us this morning. And that's exactly what he picked up. It was handed to him. So in the Old Testament, or of course with Jesus, in, in this period of time, in the synagogues, all they had was the Old Testament. As, uh, Mitch already made note to us this morning. And they would hand the scroll, and it would be the scroll. So here's the scroll of Deuteronomy. Here's the scroll of, you know, here, here's the scroll of Isaiah. And that was a really common thing for them to do. So they would usually read something from like Old Testament law, from something like the law of Moses. They'd read maybe something from the Psalms, um, and then they would also maybe read one of the, the prophets as well. And the scroll of Isaiah was then handed to him, and he opens up this, this scroll, right? He rolls it out, and he finds Isaiah 61. Now, of course, this can be a common passage, and most people would be familiar with Isaiah, especially Isaiah uh, 60, 61. Um, these are, these are the, the language of hope. This, for them, is the pinnacle of 
of hope-filled prophetic language in Judaism. Because what you have is Isaiah who writes in the time period of the exile. And if you recall about anything about the exile, the exile occurred after the kingdom had been divided, and then they were ta- because they were warring against each other, they were also taken over and warred against from outside enemies, such as the Babylonians. And so not only was Israel not united anymore, but they had been divided and been warring against each other. The Babylonians came in, and they started fighting against the Babylonians, and they had nothing to stand on, and so they eventually were then taken over. And because of their defiance and unwillingness to work with the Babylonians, they were taken off into exile, and Jerusalem fell, and it was burned to the ground. So Jerusalem now is taken into exile, and they're out in exile. They're in a completely new place. They don't speak the language. They don't eat the food. They don't know. Who, they don't know where they're living. And within this place of exile, this place of I don't know what tomorrow looks like now, you had even competing ideologies there. Some people, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen. We should figure out ways of forming insurrections against the Babylonians so we can send our way back. Other people are like, this is all going to just get blown over. It's all going to go back to normal again soon. God's going to rescue us. We're going to get sent back in a couple days. And if you remember the famous letter from Jeremiah, Jeremiah actually writes to uh, the, those who are living in exile in Babylonia. He goes, get comfortable. <laughs> I have plans for you. It's plans for hope and for a future. But that plan, though, involves you getting comfortable. Stay there. Build homes. Plant gardens. Get married. Have families. Get a job. Live here and cultivate the land in Babylon. All right? So this is the place, but they're like, man, that's not news I want to hear. And Isaiah's writing in this time of the exile. It's a time of great despair. It's a time of hopelessness. It is a time of, like, what just happened? My, the, the place, this, the city of David has been destroyed. This was the pinnacle of who we were. This is not only the place of worship, but this is the place, the seat of our government. This is this was everything to us, and now it doesn't exist anymore. The vision of hope, the story we told ourselves that we were going to be this light to the world, has been obliterated. What do we do? Isaiah delivers this this message of hope that there will be a day of restoration, a day of rebuilding. A day of something new was going to occur. And it was going to happen sometime into the future. And Isaiah writes it in this like weird like first person kind of notion. But it's really this first person notion of the spirit of the Lord is upon me, not necessarily him, Isaiah, the writer, but as in the person of the Messiah. This future victor, this future person, this future uh, king, this future Lord, this, this Christ come and make all things better. And we'll make it all new again. So, again, in Judaism, this would have been a very popular passage. They would have known this at any time in despair. They would have gone to this passage. What's interesting about this time, now that Jesus is back into Nazareth, is that this is a time of great turmoil in his day in the first century. You're now in a state in which you have competing visions of hope. And now hope, by the way, we should define this. What is hope? Most people are like, well, I hope it doesn't rain today. 
Well, did you look at the forecast? There's a chance of rain today. We have computer models that have told us that there's going to be a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms this evening around 6 o'clock. Yeah, but I hope it doesn't rain. Right? Well, I, okay, great. Like, it's one thing to say we can hope for something. But true hope is actually a, it's an aspiration for the future, but it has to be grounded in something, right? Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. Right? Hope, and so oftentimes our hope is just nothing more than wishful thinking, right? Oh, I hope this thing turns about. Well, you know, man, I hope I get that A on the test. Well, did you study for it? No. <laughs> Sorry, son. <laughs> Not sure if that's going to work out for you, right? But hope is an aspiration for something that will be occur in the future, but it's grounded in reality. It's got to be grounded in some sort of reality of today. And that's what faith is. Faith is this sense of, like, we have a reality that has been delivered to us, it's been given to us. We have truth, a divine truth that has been given to us and passed down to us. God is a self-revealing God. He's revealed himself to us through his word. He revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ, his son. He has then revealed, continues to reveal himself through us through the power of his Holy Spirit. There is a truth, even though you can't always see it and touch it, it's here, it's there, there's a reality that we can, a shared reality that we can look to today that exists, but none of us can see the future. And that's where hope comes in. Hope is an aspiration for the future, but it's grounded in a shared story of reality. And so for us as Christians, we look to the scriptures. This is the shared story of reality that we say, well, this is what is real. This is the closest thing we can get to what is real for today, and we use it to interpret our current existence. All right? And so that's how we discover what hope is. Well, it's been the same way for 2,000 years. In first century Judaism, they were looking to Torah. They were looking to the Old Testament scriptures. This is our interpreted reality of the future. And our interpreted reality of the future, of the hope, is that we're going to have one day a Messiah who is going to come in and he's going to lead like a warrior king and he's going to usurp those Roman oppressors who have taken over our land, who are running government and running shot over Jerusalem right now and over our country and our land and he and also our enemies and he is going to destroy them all or make sure that they all follow us and restore us as rightful heirs and uh, the place in which we belong. For them, it was a place of righteous rule and order. That was their vision of hope and reality. Now the Romans, they were a different breed of people. They didn't necessarily, they let the Jews and let Judaism and those worshippers of God be who they were. But they had a different vision of reality. They were beginning to form the, the academy. They were all inter, interested in the arts and the sciences. They were into humanism. And for them, they saw a future a future without the need of... But of course, they were also very pagan as well, too. So they believed in all of the, the Greek gods as well. There were things that they couldn't explain in the world. So they had the Greek gods. And so for them, there was this mix of this pagan reality of religion of all these different Greek gods and goddesses. And at the same time, we could look to the sciences and the arts and, this, and also our might and our power. We have the Roman soldiers. We have the centurions. We have power. We have world dominion. And we will rule the world one day. We will lead the way. 
You have these competing ideologies of who is going to be right. Where do we go? One of us is going to come out on top. So Jesus is now in this, this is his world that he's living in. This is the world in which God sent Jesus into. These two different, very much competing ideologies of the world. Two different visions of hope for the future. Political strife was very hot. Um, there was already revolts that had occurred. There was talk of more revolts that were going to occur, even amongst the religious, the conservative religious, were, were already plat- plotting their revolts uh, against the government. And Jesus walks into this time period. And he walks into Nazareth. And he's in the synagogue. And he opens up this passage in Isaiah. And he says, reads it, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he closes it up, and he goes, and he sits down right here. Now, if I would have just gotten up and read the passage and sat down, you'd all be staring at me like you are right now, going, okay, now what, what happens next? Because they would have been used to some sort of exposition, some sort of explanation. Well, tell us more about the passage. Speak to us more. What do we need to learn from this? We all know this passage. Now share with us. And he rolls up the scroll. He hands it back. He sits down. And as they're looking at him, he then begins to speak to them. And he says, this scripture you've heard, this that you've just heard has been fulfilled. Fulfilled this very day. So if there was this sense in the room of where, what, what is the answer? Is hope lost? Is faith dead? Is a better tomorrow even possible? Jesus in this quiet moment, this intimate setting, says to the people, Hope is alive. Faith is not dead. And your better tomorrow is now. It's here. The day of rescue, the day of redemption, the day of restoration, the day that Israel has been waiting for for thousands of years is now. Right now. Now you can imagine the confusion, right? Because for this particular crowd they would have expected this individual to come in as being somebody of great stature, somebody born into some sort of kingship, where's your entourage, where's your sword, where's your army, where's the leadership, are you political, like, like, who? And then they start to kind of question themselves, well, wait a minute, you are, you're born here. (laughs) You're, you're not, you're not, like, you're from here. We know you. <laughs> we know your parents. You're, you aren't who we, no, 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 this can't be right. But this is the message of hope that Jesus is trying to walk us down. He's cutting through the noise. 
he's reminding them that maybe the vision of hope that you had needs to be reconstructed a little bit. Maybe the vision of hope that you were kind of holding on to, the vision of the future, has not been aligned with what God's plan is for you in this time and for the people. I just want to zero in on that passage again in Isaiah 61 for a minute as he's reading this because there's just so much goodness here and I'm, I'm certain that Mitch has already taken you down this journey so much. But as you've been studying Luke, Jesus has this pattern here that he even just sets up that is right here late within this passage. And he seems to be, his, his ministry is based on these like two fundamental ideas. The first is that he brings the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. That if he is the embodiment of the spirit of the Lord, right, the embodiment of the good news, this gospel message, he's the embodiment of hope, the incarnation of hope. He is, brings, he announces, he proclaims, preaches good news. That's like always like what Jesus is about in his ministry. It's always about the telling. And not just the telling, but the active doing, the actual physical bringing, the embodiment of. Not just, I'm going to tell you good news, I'm just going to tell you that Jesus saves your sins, I'm not going to just tell you about this good news and this hope that I have, but I'm going to show it to you. Okay? And then the second part about that is the healing of others. It's always about healing or the restoration of somebody else. And specifically those of those who are the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, the enslaved, the trafficked, the broken, the hurting, the foreigner, the migrant. These are the people that he is for. These are those in which this good news is meant for. It's about their healing. It's about their restoration. And that's really important for us to recognize because of what happens next in this passage. So he's already now walking through this line. These competing visions of the, of the greater life, these competing visions of hope, right? And he's like, let's look at it this way. That the fulfillment of hope is right here, right now, before your very eyes. It may not have been what you thought, and it's not what they're, what they're thinking out there, the Romans, and the governing rulers right now. But it's this, right here. It's this notion of being anointed to bring good news to the poor, proclaiming that captives are going to be released, that the blind are going to see, that the oppressed are going to be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Past tense has. It's here. It's now. His favor is upon us now. So now... Verse 22, everyone speaks well of him. He was amazed by the words that came from his lips. How can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? So we already talked about that. Wait a minute, this is, we know this guy. Really? This is him? This is what this is? So now he discerns, of course, the room. Again, he's in his hometown. So verse 23, he goes on, he says, Well then, he said, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. 
But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. So he's kind of referring back to the idea that he's been already traveling. He's already been ministering. He's already been doing this work before he shows up in Nazareth. And people are speaking well of him. They are already seeing that he's a prophet. They're already seeing that there's something unique about his ministry. And he shows up in the hometown, delivers this message of good news, this message of hope, which doesn't fully align with what they originally had been thinking about their vision of hope was going to be. And he's calling them out on it. Listen, a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. And part of it is we've got history here. And I understand that. And then he goes on. He says, verse 25, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. So he's appealing back to the Old Testament. And when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. So he notes another scenario. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Another foreigner. Or, what the New Testament often refers to as a Gentile. What's Jesus saying here? What's he doing? The message of hope. Because here's what's happening. Let's put ourselves in the mind of the person, the person in the synagogue right now. I'm a Jew. I've been a Jew my entire life. I've been told this story, this narrative. My hope is that I'm going to have, that we're going to have this Redeemer, this Son of David, who's going to come, and he is going to kick out the Romans and kick out those, the in, basically like the, those who are the unclean amongst our midst, right? The unrighteous. And we are going to be restored to our rightful place, like in the day of David, who, by the way, was a warrior who defeated all of his enemies. That was their vision of the future. We were going to be on the right side of history. And Jesus is here in this moment, preaching Isaiah 61, which, by the way, was used to share that same message. But he's now undoing that for them for this moment. He's reconstructing the vision of hope. He's saying, listen, it's not going to go down that way. It's not going down that way. I'm your victor. I'm a humble carpenter. I'm not a Roman centurion. I definitely don't look like one. And I'm not King David. I'm far better than that. I'm God's anointed son. But I look very different than what you expected me to be. And not only that, God's salvation is not here for you right now. This message of hope, because when they hear that message of Isaiah 61, when they think that they're the poor and the oppressed, when they hear poor, when they hear oppressed, when they hear captives, they think us, as the ones in the synagogue, we're the oppressed. The Romans are here oppressing us. We're the ones who are being held captive. We can't worship freely. They're making us do this. We're making us pay taxes. They're oppressing me. And Jesus cuts right through that noise. And he goes, listen, look even how God worked in the Old Testament. 
he bypassed even what you thought were the righteous and what they thought were the righteous of them all in the Old Testament. And he said he would he sent the prophets to the foreigners, to the migrants, to the Gentiles, to the refugee, to the ones who are not like you. And he said, this is where hope is restored. It is by moving beyond oneself and by looking at this in a sense by going good news to the poor among you. Hope restored to those who are truly captive, those who are imprisoned, those who are enslaved, and releasing them so that the blind will see, not just spiritual blindness, but even the physically blind, the physically ill, those who are ailed and who, who have no place in society, that they can't even succeed or thrive and be valued as human beings. And that the oppressed, the broken, the suffering will be set free from their suffering. And that this is where the Lord's favor comes. And so he speaks to them and appeals to them and says, this is the good news. This is where hope is. This is hope restored. This is the language of hope. This is a language of hope that everybody understands. You don't have to speak the language. You can go to the foreigner and offer them relief from their oppression. You can go to the person who you don't even speak the same language or even understand their culture, and you can offer them help and support and healing and mercy and grace. And that is a language that it, it crosses every culture. It crosses every boundary. This is how the good news is brought. It's this language of almost justice. It's, it's this sense of being able to go to bring help and relief to those who are not like you. And the reason why that Jesus can say this, and he can say this to this particular crowd of people, is because they are already the chosen ones of God. They already have everything you need. Why are you complaining sitting here in your space, in your synagogue, when you're not doing the work that God has called you to do out there? Are you seeing the line being drawn now to us today? Are we feeling it? Because this is the message for us today as well. That if you follow Jesus Christ and have been restored by the power of His Holy Spirit, you have everything you need. And you are now free to do the work of the ministry. You are free to follow in the work of Jesus. You are free to be filled with His Holy Spirit and to now be embodied His Spirit and His presence to do the same work by bringing the gospel in embodiment, in fullness, in works and in word, and to heal, to restore, to bring hope. And that, that everybody understands. We are... Um, Part of the, the, the thing that you are noticing and that we are feeling uh, as um, a church and as the evangelical community in the United States especially is a, um, is a growing sense of, you know, we, we hear, depending upon who you're listening to, um, 
you'll hear it often talk about secularization, right, of culture, things like that. And um, there's different words and phrases that people tend to use to try to describe this undoing of what not many people might think is a this sense of this Judeo-Christian value system um, or even what has been considered to be this Christian nation, right? Uh, some people would say, well, America was founded as a Christian nation. And some people believe that, some people don't believe that. Um, there was a sense in a period of time in the United States that was, if you were an American, you were likely going to be encountered either having grown up in a church or have been to church, okay? That was a pretty common experience for most people up until the recent few decades, until about the turn of the century. And um, as such, because of that, there was a strong sense of Christian culture and the Christian language has been embedded very much into the American culture. Okay? But as the America has evolved over time, less of that has been as prevalent. People don't go to church as much. We, and so they, they hear these words and these phrases, but they're disconnected from theology. They're disconnected from the actual scriptures themselves. I like to tell this story because it was a very revealing one to me many years ago. It was around the time that Mitch and I met. It was actually even before that. Uh, we had a girl in our youth ministry, uh, junior high age, and we were giving a just a typical gospel presentation to these, these students. And um, the one girl just kind of had this real blank look on her face, like totally disconnected, totally checked out. And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that's not totally uncommon for a junior hire. <laughs> but um, we, part of our practice was that maybe I'd deliver a message and then, um, and then the kids would kind of break up in these little small groups and uh, with a leader. And so this girl goes with her small group leader, and the leader comes and tells me this story later um, afterwards, and because she needed some advice, she's like, "I don't know what just happened in there." I said, well, "What's wrong?" And she goes, "Well, so this particular girl, um, she said she wasn't. We were talking about the message and trying to figure out where people were in their faith journeys at this point, since it was a pretty, you know, very clear message that you were giving and about, you know." A response to the gospel and a response to whether people want to follow and step out in faith in Jesus and, um, and so the girl just she just said nothing the entire time and she's normally somewhat of a typical quiet girl but this was like nothing and so she goes well I, I decided to try a tactic and I just kind of leaned back on the only thing I knew and that was I'm going to ask her well when you die you're going to go to heaven or hell right it's kind of like kind of our the last resort that Christians have out of the pocket like you know used to be the first thing people would present you with but now it's like the last thing we got uh if you die where are you going to go heaven or hell that's the only card I got left to play right uh, in our evangelism efforts and um so she she plays that and she and, and the girl looks at her and she goes I don't know what that is I don't know what that means now, she's one of many, right? But, um, and that's a very small percentage of, of those that you will encounter who don't understand the concepts of heaven or hell. But it is an example of the fact that you cannot assume that anybody understands the language you're speaking to them if you're reading the scriptures and you're listening to people like Mitch or myself. The language has changed. It doesn't mean we got to fight tooth and nail to get God back into the, into the culture. It doesn't mean we've got to fight tooth and nail 
to ensure that scripture is read in schools again. We don't need to fight tooth and nail to ensure that we're praying in all these spaces again, okay? We still have agency. You are still followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have agency, but just know that there is a diversifying world that is occurring around you, and the world isn't the same way it used to be. It is fundamentally different, and it's fundamentally changed, and it has been changing. And the quicker we are to acknowledge it, the better off we'll be, because then we'll be armed with the idea of an understanding that people just don't think the same way I think. They just don't understand the things that I understand. They don't see reality. Therefore, no wonder we don't have hope in this world anymore. Because we're not working on the same page. We're not working in the same sense of reality anymore. And wake up, Christians. There's a sense of us that we haven't even been like looking at reality in the way it's been. There are many of us who have been in denial over this idea that the world has been changing. We don't want it to change. We want our old glory back. We want when King David sat down on the throne and Jerusalem ruled the land. So today, and Jesus is walking in saying, that's not the way it's going to be. Those days are over. They're not coming back. And proof is that in 80, 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed again. It hasn't been rebuilt since. Proof is in the pudding. Let's have a shared reality. Let's get on the same page. God's revealing it to us. Let's just get on his page. Let's get off ours. Let's get on his. That's what he's trying to show us. That's what he's trying to reveal, even in this, this moment here in Luke, and then even for us today. What a more important message than for us. And by the way, I don't need to talk about salvation from heaven or hell. I don't need to talk about... Um, you know, whether you're predestined or not. I don't need to talk about the tulip or whether we're Calvinists or not, or I don't need to talk about Reformed theology, but I need to know what my theology is. I need to know what God says about this world. But you know what speaks to hope in the world? Is a language that you don't even need to know anything about God. You don't have to know anything about Jesus. You don't need to know anything about what he did for you on the cross for me to be able to enter in and to bring you good news. Because I can embody it for you. All I need to do is go to the poor and alleviate their, their position and their station in life. I can go to the oppressed. I can go to the one who is suffering, and I can help them. I can share my wealth. I can share my privilege. I can share my position with them. And that immediately breaks down all the barriers. And that gives that person hope because it reminds them of what the reality is, is that I thought this world was out to get me. I thought everything in this world was falling apart. But you today reminded me that there are good people in this world. And that maybe he, something, something sent you right here in this moment to come and help me. Your neighbor's waiting for you, by the way. Your coworker's waiting for you. Somebody's waiting for you. And they don't even know it yet. This, this is the gospel. This is Jesus, like embodying his Holy Spirit, sending us out into this chaotic, crazy world. But I understand it is so discombobulating. And it is so discomforting right now. Because everything that we've held on to, the traditions, the language, everything has changed. The quicker we can get to just acknowledging that, 
and that our shared stories of hope have just radically are changing before us, let's get down back to the basics. And Jesus reminds us of what those basics are. As you guys go to finish out the book of Luke, as you're, you're finishing out your series next week, remind yourselves that Jesus kept it pretty simple. And all the theology and all the amazing practical things that Pastor Mitch has been working you through, you can just remind yourself by going, this is pretty simple. He brought the gospel. He didn't just say it, but he did it. And he healed. He brought hope. He brought good news. And that, that helps us lean into the future. That helps us remind us that we can believe that a better tomorrow isn't just tomorrow, but it's actually going to happen today for you and for others. Because hope has been revealed. It's been given to us. Let's pray. Mighty God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for um, shaking us up a little bit, Lord, this morning. And for reminding us, Lord, of just the um, difficulty in which we live today. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of all that is changed and all that is changing and all that is different, that there's a great hope. That there is a, a great promise before us that you are returning, Lord. <laughs> that you are not only going to make all things new again, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the coming of your kingdom, it's happening now. And we can be a part of that story. And even though when it feels like everything else is falling apart, God, you are still good. You haven't left your throne. You haven't gone anywhere. You're still right there. So if you haven't changed, maybe we need to change. Maybe there's something that we need to learn, Father, and do differently. And give us hope for today, Lord. Give us hope. Give us, remind us, Lord, of our, of our position and, and our place in your kingdom. Ground us, Lord, in knowing that we were once these people. We were those who were estranged. We were those who were lost. We were those, Lord, who needed your goodness in our life. Help us to lean on our, our, our ancestors of our faith. Help us to lean on, Lord, our, our backgrounds and, um, and our parents and those who brought us up in this faith and our, our mentors, Lord. Let us be grateful for them, Father, for how they have showed us the pathway to you. But let us be willing, Lord, to give you the reins and to follow you in faith, Lord, even in this new and strange world. Help us to forgive us, Lord, when we have raised up other people's flags, claiming it's on your behalf. Lord, help us just to remove the bumper stickers, to take down the flags, and for us just to, to lean on you, Jesus, to raise your flag, to raise your kingdom, to raise up people, Lord, to know that you are God, and we are not. And you are good, and you've empowered us with your spirit to follow you in faith. And to remind us, Lord, that a hopeful future is around the corner. And that we are empowered by your spirit to not only live into that reality, but to share it with others. I just want to pray over Good News Church and your faithfulness over them as you continue to empower them with your presence and your spirit and lead them, Father, 
as you see best fit. In Jesus' name.